Hello and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond. I've read every book in the main series. However, my co-hosts are reading the series for the first time. With me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hi, everyone. That was a big yawn there, Inge. And our producer, AJ Falleri, is on the show with us today. How are the levels, the bars? Levels, great. Bars, not so great. I'm just kidding. Everything's fine. Everything looks great. We're doing great today. And our very own Ken Rawl Fisher peasant trapped in perpetual slavery, it's Joshua Dean Baker. <laughs> what? The lilac. Lilac. Oh, a sla- he's a, a slave oh, demon. Lilac rules. I'm cool with that. I get a big club, maybe an axe. Do I have four arms or two? I think you're just really big and have a double. Well, double that's already axe. true, so. <laughs> Whoa! What the yeah, fuck, bro? Wait, wait, great energy. <laughs> we got a wild energy on the show today. We're talking about chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19 of Midnight Tides. That's right, we're coming up to the end of the book, and the conflict between the Eater and Lotharior is in full bloom. And there's a lot to talk about, so I think we should just get right into it. Chapter 16 Featherwitch speaks to Udanas about being beat and used by Mayan. They debate about perspectives and vengeance, and then move towards trait. Troll's force is drawing closer to High Fort. Four more major battles are to be expected. In trait, Saren is getting drunk in a tavern. She listens to Lothary offer their expectations about war, then she meets a foreign soldier named Iron Bars. He is with the Crimson Guard, and they have just arrived from a sale. He and his friends are in debt, and are looking for help. But Saren declines. Iron Bars plans to sail south, and maybe see her there. A mage named Nekal Bera is in the lighthouse of Trait, worrying. She thinks on a sea creature that the Eater have bonded with, and works out a plan to attack it with another mage. However, her theory of what the enslaved creature is, is wrong. She is surprised by the attack, killed, but calls out for the Sidakura Khan before death. Saren awakes in a cellar in pain from being raped. The city is in chaos and under attack. Her three rapists return to find her, and before they can take her away, Ironbar arrives and kills them. He says Trait has fallen, and the Eater are massacring soldiers. Ironbar thinks they can retreat together using a warren, but they are blocked off. Rulad and Eater troops are the ones blocking them off. Udanis is with them and sees Saren. They fight their way through the Eater, and later they will use the Warren to get to Letharis by the mage Corlo's magic. Saren realizes then that Iron Bars killed Rulad. Rulad awakes on the beach of the crippled god. Withal waits for him. Rulad doesn't want to go to see the crippled god, and he doesn't want the sword. He speaks with Withel about how the sword was made. 
Brithel says that the crippled god lies, and that for Rulad, his dying will become harder and harder. Rulad thinks then of Father Shadow, and hides his own thoughts before going into the tent. Traveling the Warren, the Crimson Guard mage Corlo says the Eater are perhaps unknowingly using the Tistandi Elder Warren Corald Gallane. The Warren is filled with Tistandi spirits that are bound to the Eater. They speak with a female wraith about her life, and she asks them to throw a ring into the sea so she can rejoin her bones. Her name is Sandaleth Drukkorlat. Nearing the tent, Rulad wonders if he can just kill the crippled god, and Withal thinks it is impossible in this realm. Inside the tent, Rulad wishes the crippled god would use someone else, that he doesn't want this power. The crippled god then tells Rulad about Skavandari's betrayal of the Andy, and the god still demands an empire. Rulad reaches for the sword and lunges at the crippled god, but disappears. Withal and the crippled god argue about the god's body. The Crimson Guard and Saren leave Corald Glane. Saren walks into the sea and almost drowns herself. Iron Bars is tossing Sandalet's ring into the water and sees Saren and saves her. Sandalith dies again, but a voice says she is still needed. She wakes up on the beach alive. Rulad's corpse has become the gathering point for hundreds. Eater soldiers, the Warlock King, Mayan, Featherwitch. Rulad comes back to life and finds Udanis. Udanis wants to find the man who killed him, and Udanis thinks the Lothari will soon learn about Rulad's undying. And finally, on the crippled god's island, Withel prays to his own Mekris god, Male. lot going on in the city of trait you know and and there's a siege a lot of stuff and at the start of it we're amongst the eater and featherwitch is speaking to udanis uh udan udanas and it's it's clear uh that the markings that she's been being abused by mayan uh being used i think is the word and becomes more explicit later on and uh they kind of have a conversation about this in perspectives and indy i wonder what you make of featherwitch here i think you express frustrations with the character and how she was treating udanis before and i wonder what you make of her now and uh how she is being treated by Mayan. Um, I feel bad for Featherwitch now. I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that she's incredibly rude, but I do feel bad that Mayan has like no completely like deadpan when she's around Rulad and then, or I guess all of that, whatever comes with that, uh, is getting taken out on Featherwitch. So that's pretty shitty. And I feel bad for her, but also... I don't know. That's about it. It's it's a pretty shitty situation um, all around for everyone involved. So that's that. I agree. Pretty shitty. And I got to say, I think Udanas does a terrible job of listening here. I do not think he is being very, I don't know. That's my takeaway. He was you know? definitely not as invested. I think he's also like just like, well, what am I going to do? Who am I all the time? So 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I just think when he's there, he's like, well, have you considered it from her point of view? It's like, this isn't the time, bro. Not right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty, it's in poor taste, I feel, you know. Adra, what, what did you make of this development? And it's definitely touched on later on when uh, in that kind of bigger court scene that I think's in, I, don't, I think that's in chapter it's 18. Chapter. It's not in this chapter. It's in, yeah, it's in the, the last chapter or the one before yeah. it. Um, I mean, like abused people turning to abuse is a thing that happens, but I don't think it usually happens like a a switch is flipped, you know, but I mean, I guess there's a a different power struggle happening between or or, or power dynamics between Mayan and Featherwitch already. So I I don't know. I think it is interesting to see Mayan to see that Mayan is hurting, you know, despite what we've kind of seen in the previous chapters where it's kind of, seems like she's kind of resigned to it but hearing her hearing featherwitch talk about the abuse that she's going through um kind of illustrates in a way how mayan is is feeling you know and i think that's rough yeah and i think um although of course it's terrible um i think it's uh developing mayan more as a character you know and Mm -hmm. i think I don't know. I think she is really a character more defined through some of this stuff, you know? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the stuff we see with Mayan is through other characters, you know? Yeah, she's Um, definitely, yeah. It's a lot of indirect characterization with her sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Eater forces are drawing closer to trait, and before we do, we catch up with Saren, who is getting very drunk and listening to what the Lethari people think this battle may be like. She encounters the Crimson Guard, uh led by iron bars who talks about debt they've kind of like stumbled across their way into and then uh and josh i wonder what you make of iron bars and his introduction in this scene and then obviously he makes a bigger introduction later on but what was your initial impression of the character well i i thought it was very interesting um i do want to clarify though correct me if i'm wrong and i don't know how much of this indian aga also picked up but so the crimson guard are the ones under caladan brood that we hear about a lot in the first and third books yeah and they like yes, they, they we, are allied with caladan brood in the anti-imperial forces on yes, kenabacus but we don't know yet because mm. we later hear them talking about their prince we don't know we don't know if caladan brood is their prince right or is he no, the prince is a character named Kaz Devor. Kaz Devor. Oh, what? Wait, the one that Kaz stole Devor? the throne? No. Literally never met him. He is just talked about. Oh, so. okay, cool. All right. Wait. I wanted to make sure. Yes? Who's Caladan Brood? Caladan Brood is from the third book. He's the big hammer bro who's big good friends guy. with with uh, Anamander Rake. He like, yeah. he, he like breaks smash. the ground underneath Krupp yeah. in that one scene. And like makes a mountain just from him hitting his hammer into the ground. Um, but I thought Ibar's was pretty cool. Um, this scene was like weird to me. Actually, India and I called and talked about it because I I I really liked how this scene was written because there's so much exposition. But even Saren doesn't get it. You know what I mean? Like it's all italicized comments from other drunk people. Uh, yeah. And and it's just kind of you know. So like if you're if it, like Saren's not understanding how important all of these whispered rumors are, but like we are, and it's interesting that like it's confirming a lot of the stuff that like previous chapters had kind of been moving towards. So I, I liked it. Um, I thought Iron Bars was pretty cool. I mean, we don't I, like you said, we don't know much about him in this scene. I'm very curious though. Even as far as 19, we don't know yet. I'm very curious what he sees in Saren and why he has decided uh, that he wants her to accompany them. I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah. 
AJ, uh, the chat uh, immediately after this, we go to a lighthouse and this mage we've never seen before named oh, yes. Nickel. I was hoping you were going to ask me about this part. Fuck yes. Bro, it's cool. Is like, you know, they have some ideas, but then those ideas were wrong and everything kind of goes to shit. She calls the seed right before she dies. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and, you know, Erickson will do this sometimes where he'll introduce this character to give us insight into something that, like, our kind of main cast, so to speak, it isn't really privy to, right? So, like, yeah. just in this scene, you know, the life of Nekalbera exists in these paragraphs alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder what you think of using characters like this, introducing in that way, and just your thoughts on the scene in general. Uh, I love it. I love this scene so much. It is so fucking cool. <laughs> um, but outside yeah. of that, yeah. like, this happened at the end of the last section we read uh, i think with twilight maybe that, not the last section but in a previous chapter it happened with with twilight the yeah, yeah, yeah. The i think it was the end of the commander we met. couple chapters yeah yeah um and when Jan was... at the end of the chapter's there and they're like yeah. we should surrender the fort and, and then they do and then later yeah. it's like hey they surrendered the fort and it's like we were there yeah <laughs> well that dude got um, his fucking lips stitched up i guess it's it is yeah. said because people are like how dare he say the truth <laughs> Yeah, Josh, you I, I didn't even my my small peanut brain saw all these italicized things and thought, I don't want to read these and just skimmed over. Are you them. serious? You <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but no. Yeah. So this scene with Nickelberra is so, so good. And I think this is a really cool way to to do uh, exposition about like what is how the war is going you know how stuff mm-hmm. is happening mm-hmm. because they do talk about it later and it's kind of like a te- showing not telling you know or showing and telling i guess because he is literally showing us this event happened and then later in the in the the chapter or later in the this section somebody's like oh man this happened it sucked um which i think is interesting now thinking about it because steve is so much about telling not showing in some moments I think, yeah, he, in my opinion, he really fluctuates. There's some times where he really shows you and is doing like super quiet. And then other times he just comes out and says, says it, you know, Mm -hmm. but back to this scene specifically, it's just so wild and so cool. And is this the, is this creature or whatever the creature that, uh, killed all the, the seal fishers, the seal murderers? Yes. Yeah. Josh says yes. If it's if it's not, that would be insane. Well, that's what I'm saying. Said, if one. there's another huge monster, <laughs> yeah. it's like, OK, yeah. So so finally, you know, we are, I don't know, two thirds of the way through this book. And finally, now seeing this huge thing that we saw in the very beginning, uh, just absolutely decimate people. And for the 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 this mage who I guess Nickelbarra seems like she knows a lot uh, to be like, I think it's definitely this and then go to do a thing. And it's like, Oh, it's definitely not this. Oops. Is kind of, kind of scary. You know, Uh, we've, we've just kind of been on the outskirts of knowing Hannon Mozag's power, I guess, or influence or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now we are kind of seeing exactly what he is capable of or is capable of of tapping into, at least. So this scene just just fucking rules. And the 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 Sita Kurakan hear me see is is so good. Mm -hmm. That's awesome that it resonated with me that much. I feel like sometimes those characters, I don't know. I I don't know if I always can go there with that, but I'm glad that you you can, you know? Yeah, there there are some times where like there will definitely be a a, with with the Twilight thing. I really was like I was 
introduced to this well, character. You can't impeach Twilight in front of me, bro. <laughs> okay. I was like, oh, we're getting introduced to this new character. And I guess I just wasn't ready to like get introduced to a character and then have them thrown away because I don't remember if that happened in the last book. So I don't think my head was really there. I, I, I don't know. I but, don't but, know. Erickson does it a lot. I guess it happened earlier than this in the series, but I'm not 100%. So. I think it definitely happened in Memories of Ice with like one of it the It definitely sieges. happens in Garden of the Moons. I think Dead House Gates happens once or twice too. Yeah. I feel like Capustan has to have had one of those moments, right? I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway. But, but yeah, anyway. So, so, so the, the Twilight section was honestly a great primer for this section because I, I met Nickelbarra and I was like, oh, a new character? Probably not going to last. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> yeah. just, I was just kind of along for the ride. Uh, and and it ruled it ruled so uh after kind of the battle kind of breaks out and the city is under full attack so we catch up with saren who awakes after being raped and uh we're gonna we just decided as a show we're gonna talk about more of that in chapter 19 and the second half of that and just bigger thoughts on that so instead i want to you know leave that there for a sec and inge i want to ask you then you know Iron Bars comes in, and then we see that the Eater have cut them off, and Iron Bars kills Rulad, you know? Was there any part of you that was surprised or, like, thought Rulad was dead? No. Um, okay. <laughs> no. I was just like... I gotta say, maybe I'm just a complete idiot. I definitely often... This time, too, I know I've read, I've read all the books. I know... I. I was like, oh, my God, Rulad's dead, you know, and she's like, fucking God damn it. You know, I don't know. I just it got me again a second time, you know. (laughs) So let's uh, let's follow that plot line further. Then Rulad wakes up on the beach and he has a long conversation with Withel about maybe how he doesn't really want this job. He would like to leave the company. Um, and they speak about kind of the nature of the crippled God and, and they, you know, just share in their lives as people who are in the orbit of this God. What did you make of this conversation? And now that Withel is kind of a recurring character that's, I think, been developed a little more. What do you make of that guy? Um, I like him. I think he's he's a tortured soul. I feel so bad for Withel. He is just miserable over there, resigned to his fate. <laughs> Absolutely. And mm-hmm. it is so sad. Um, Mm. And and I was a little bit confused about why he says that he's he doesn't think that the crippled god can read his thought or hear his thought and what that means and why that is if he can do that to like everyone else or can he I don't know I don't understand this whole little island uh, paradise that the crippled god has created but I felt bad for Rulad when Rulad comes to the little island he is like his most raw and broken form. Um, and then you see him come back as like coin roulade and he's just a different person. So it's really clear that um, he's not in control, I feel, when he comes back to life. I th- you know, he says we. It's obvious that there's somebody in his head, but he really is um, someone else because when he comes to that island, he's like, I'm done. This is horrible. This sucked. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't really get why he went back. Um, I don't know what the crippled God said that made him like all right fine i'll go was it that he tried to like stab him is that what happened or that's definitely my impression that he kind of picks up the sword to use it but then it sends him right back right yeah yeah Yeah. (sighs) that's how i read it too it's like the sword was like a a conduit for his teleportation back to his body that was fucked up oh god i feel bad for like i didn't like roulette obviously he was annoying and then when he came back the first time i and was like a super asshole i was like oh my god roulette sucks but like this is not roulette and i feel so bad for the little boy 
that just keeps getting murdered and doesn't want to and is in constant agony with the psychopath in his head. Yeah. Yeah. You you really don't yeah. get to like feel full empathy for Rulat until he's on the island and it's actually just Rulat again. You know what I mean? Exactly. Because when, he, when, he's, when he's an emperor, he's like got competing personalities or whatever. But on the island, he's just like, and you got to feel bad. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, when he talks to Udinas, it's also, um, like, he just seems crazy at that point, which mm-hmm. I get. But I also feel bad for him in those scenes. Mm-hmm. I do think it's worth noting. I mean, I largely agree. I feel I love Rulad. I think he's a fascinating character. Okay, okay. But, like, he did take up the sword to form an empire for the crippled god. You know, he is accountable. You know, like, I don't know. It's... Well, I mean, he picked up the sword to not die to some shape-shifting wolfmen. But even after that, no, he when he first washes up on the crippled god island and the god's like, I like I hate peace. I love empires. You should make me an empire, bro. I mean, Peter, and he picks Peter, up the sword. He bro. did not say he hates peace. You mischaracterized that that scene earlier when we talked about it. That is not what happened. Yeah. Also, Peter, here's the deal. I'm going to be real with you guys. If someone came to me and was like, I'm going to give you a sword and you will become all powerful. I will. 10 times out of 10 pick that sword up what the fuck bro (laughs) (laughs) yeah honestly i might also yeah i think this is crazy for not wanting to this is classic shit this is what all the you know bro you don't take the magic cursed sword bro this is like how do you know that yeah how do you know it's cursed how do you know unless you do it okay just like from you, the Josh. descriptions of the crippled god, and he says, I have a sword for you, and it's not cursed. You Come didn't on. know. Wait, here's my thing, right, 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 right? Here's my thing. sword yeah. in the ice. Yeah, how do I say no to a god, you know? It's yeah. tough. <laughs> I don't know. Take it up with Karsa Orlong, a character I don't like, but definitely said no, so. Uh-huh. That's true. Whatever. Nice. Fucking Mark. <laughs> Um, well, listen, we can talk about that. Uh, no, let's just, let's just go around the table, then finish yeah. out this little thing. So, um, Rulad then in the second half of this scene, there's a break in between it, but he enters the tent and speaks directly with the crippled God. And they also kind of postulate about whether it'd be possible to kill him. And Willow's like, oh, I don't think in the crippled God's realm and then the vastness of the realm. And then, uh, you know, they speak more. And then the crippled God is like, yeah, but Scabinary Blood Eyes, a traitor killed the Andy. Your people are lying to you. You know, your God's a false God Mm -hmm. and, you know, Rulad can't take this. And, you know, then he tries to strike down the crippled God, gets sent back, as we just said, in a way. So um, what did you make of this direct confrontation, Josh? Between uh, Rulad and the crippled God? I mean, yeah, once we're more in the tent. I mean, like, I mean, it's not even it's not even fair. Like the crippled God has a millennia of experience in manipulating angsty people. And like, what? like Rulad's got nothing except youthful impudence. Like he's got no hope. Yeah. So, I mean, it feels kind of bad to watch him get toyed with. Now then I don't feel as bad later when he does horrific shit. But like in this moment, it's kind of like it, it does feel a little bad. Well, let me ask you this, AJ, big crippled God defender over there. Okay. Um, what do you what do you re, what do you really uh where are you at with this uh you know everyone's favorite coughing god you I know just, and I, we learn we're, they're postulating a little bit more about the mysteries of him you know i don't know we we're, we're seeing more and more of him in this book than we certainly did in memories vice I, yeah. I i just gotta say i want aj's new subtitle to be crippled god apologist and i think that's a really good <laughs> it's a that's really not, good collection of syllables <laughs> All I'm saying, before I answer your question, Pete, all I'm saying about that peace point is all the Cripple God was saying is that 
in in the realm of man or whatever peace breeds war he's he was not saying peace is bad he wants war he was saying war is going to happen because there is peace and that sure is probably a manipulation um but i just think saying that he's saying peace is bad is a mischaracterization of that statement i'm definitely being flipped as i said how do you feel about the crippled god aj you know speaking Um, of war and peace how old were you guys when you realized that the character in Sky High's name was War and Peace, War and Peace? Was that like an Whoa. immediate realization or were you like, was it like your Josh, sixth watch? Josh, this, we got to stay on topic, bro. AJ. <laughs> got three additional chapters after this one. Um, no, I thought I, 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 I have really enjoyed all the Crippled God scenes. I wasn't expecting to see him as much in this book. I wasn't expecting to see him a second time in this book, you know, because all the other times that we've seen him, we've seen him like in the beginning and maybe in the end. And that's kind of all we get is like five whole total paragraphs of Crippled God content. But he, 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 he's playing, he, he's playing the big, the big game now. And I think it's, it's very cool. And I'm having a great time. And I think I did have a point to make, but I forget what it was because I spent so much time <laughs> thinking about other stuff. No worries. Uh, oh yeah, and I, I mean he's he's just the most interesting to me because I he he is he is living outside of time, which is just such a wild fucking thing for Steve to introduce into this this series, and it comes up later, so I'll talk about it later. Traveling in the Warrens as they're escaping the city, uh, Saren's with the Crimson Guard, and they uh, you know they they notice that like. The, the Mage Corlo opens a warren, which is like, you know, I guess noticeable considering where we are in Lether and the Holds and all that. And, you know, they notice they're in the Corald Galane and they find all these Tisty Andy spirits and they free one. And later on, we know we learn her name Sandalith Druck Corlat. And, uh, Ange, what do you think of this kind of Tisty Andy character that kind of slips out here? I thought it was random. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought it was random. I didn't get it. I don't know why she's there. I, I assume I'll find out more information later. But She can't die yet. Exactly. Very fascinated. How? So they put her in the water to go find her body, and then she comes up in the crippled god place. How? Yeah. How? If Saren died in the water, would it's she that have crippled god, god magic, god baby. Place? He lives outside magic. time. He knows what's going to happen. <laughs> I need more information. Anyway, she's funny, though. Uh, We'll talk about her later, I assume. I I enjoy her as a character. I just don't understand her purpose. I don't understand how she got there. I don't even... I'm intrigued, I'll say. But that's all I really know. All right, all right. So, uh, near the end of the chapter, all the complete rubes like me are gathering around Rulad's corpse like, oh my god, the emperor's (laughs) dead. And then like, (laughs) boo-boo! Did you really think he was gonna die? I, I do. I just like every time though, when that scene happens, I'm just as shocked as the other characters. Like, what do you mean? You know, it's yeah. But I, you know, w- and- when when Iron Bars does it, I did have to read that paragraph like two or three times to be like, wait a minute, am I reading this right? But then your brain begins. <laughs> but to then use... my brain began to go. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say it, but yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I began to uh, think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, he comes back to life, and uh, the final scene of the chapter is Withel on the island praying to the elder god male so i just want to say i think it is i like like i feel like steve is he grows a lot like like i don't know he's always doing new shit but i love with i love when some classic steve bullshit chug crops up and i think everything on the crippled god island is like the is like textbook classic steve shit like what do you mean i you know how sometimes steve be like your character 
no important. And then like many, many pages later, it's like, what's that important? And I feel like that's all <laughs> withal. Like, uh, like he's a prologue character. We never care about prologue characters. They, they are always pushed to the side, but not withal. Withal's just here. And do we know shit about him? He makes sword. Like, eh? He makes sword. And I, every time we come back to him, I just am like, you've got, there's got to be a purpose because his purpose can't just be talking to Rulad, especially now that he now has another person there. So like, I just, I'm so beyond curious what this stupid, like, blacksmith is going to become. Like, he's got to end up being the cause of something major, but, like, my dumb brain can't come up with any any reasonable thing he could be doing. Because he can't kill I just yeah. Go ahead. I just thought there was like a you got mail joke or something. So that's my my question broke down. And that was what I was trying to contribute to the podcast. Sorry, I think the message, it kind of like bounced back. I think you had the wrong domain. Nice. Nice, Email jokes. (laughs) Get it? Email. Get it? Chapter 17. uh, We want to thank backers who support us on Patreon. Josh, do you want to thank these lovely, lovely people for us? This week, we would like to thank... Our new Patreon subscribers, Greg, Brett, Tate, William, Nathan, Sierra, Michael, David, Bill, and Adel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Peter, wow, you really jumped in there. <laughs> Sorry, I was... I yeah. am appreciative. I was just... <laughs> yeah. Peter is not Thanks, thankful. as always. Thanks as always. We are we are all very equally as thankful for for all of your generous contributions to the show. At the end of December, we released Thank a you. slew a slew of bonus episodes. Uh, which which probably would not have happened without y'all's support. So thank you so very much. And now blood in the feed, baby. All let's right, move on. let's move on to chapter seventeen. AJ, do you want to read the summary for me? No, but I will. Thank you. Chapter 17. After Bug falls into the canal accidentally, Tahul speaks with him. Bug is finished up with the foundations of the fifth wing and Tahul notes the scars on the old man. They walk together and speak about inequality and poverty. Tahul wants to make Bug a leader for many of the refugees and poor. Breeze speaks with the Sita about trait and the eater invasion. The Sita is conserving his power, and they speak about what is going on with the hold of death. Breeze mentions Kettle is undead, and the Sita urges that they go to her. Kettle speaks with Shirk. Shirk will soon assault the Tulls, and she wants to persuade spirits to join her, and they eventually agree. Kettle realizes that she is slowly coming back to life as the Azath dies. Breeze and the Sita come to the Azath Tower to speak to Kettle. She speaks of the Azath Tower, saying that the heart inside will not fully awake. The Sita believes the house became the hold of death. The Sita thinks that the cult of the Nameless One foresaw the death of the Azath, so they acted to trap those who might escape. He sees Kettle is no longer the Azath Guardian. She just waits for those who will escape. Kettle speaks, then, of a pretty man with lots of boyfriends and girlfriends who often watches the house and once spoke to her of the Hold of Death. The man said the Hold of Death needs no guardian and that its throne is occupied. Breeze and the Sita leave. 
Kettle then finds herself at Silchus Ruin's side on an ancient battlefield with the Kachain Shamal. They speak of rivals and the lingering dead. Kettle then tells him of the war and that the Eater will try to kill Silchus Ruin. Ruin says he will not do the same. Shirk infiltrates the tolls, and one of her spectral companions memorizes the ledgers. Kurakan reflects back on his own prophecy of the seventh closure and wonders if the Lethari could have been mistaken. At a bar, Tahul and Rucket come to supper. Shand, Risara, and Hejun are there as well, and after a fight breaks out, Bug and Tahul leave for the night. Chapter 17 kicks off with some Tehul and Bug hijinks. Bug falls in the canal, tell, and they <laughs> speak a lot about the plans <laughs> and then the poor. Josh, uh, how'd you feel about uh, tell and Bug, and how do you feel about the poor? <laughs> well, I've always said the poor should really just <laughs> rise, you know, pull themselves up, you know? What else are bootstraps for if not to be hoisted up? Yeah, so no, uh, those, those are my feelings. Fucking Christ, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um... What a great question. I lobbed at you. Did you like that incisive framing of the discussion? I think it was great. Yeah, I can talk about the poor for ages, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, do it, dude. I think, again, Bug and Tahul are the greatest pair of literary characters I've ever read, maybe, in terms of just sheer fun. And I I feel like, can I tell you something? I'm, and I don't know if AJ and Indy agree of my interpretation of this. The more and more I read of Bug and Tahul, the more I really think that I've, it like their relationship feels like Bug is really powerful, but just kind of got tired of just like deciding what to do. And I feel like <laughs> at for a while, I thought to whole kind of knew how good Bug was. You know, at first you're like, he doesn't take him. He doesn't appreciate him. And then you're like, oh, he gets it. The more I read, the more I'm like, damn, I think to whole really doesn't understand just how fucking crazy Bug is. And I love all like I love that I'm constantly questioning everything about their friendship and that's beautiful uh i really think friend best the best friendships are grounded in um uncertainty and uh you know you always gotta wonder can i kill this person or would they kill me first i think if you're not thinking that about your friends uh you're not real friends personally <laughs> um i don't know this raising a lot of confusing feelings for me josh but i know i know right now which of you i would kill in a fight and who would kill me Let's just go around the room. India would kill me. I would kill Peter. AJ and I would take each other out. Mm. I'm a pacifist, so I feel like we're not even playing on That's even That's why I would kill you. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. Josh, I don't know if you... I got like, quite quite on. a few inches on you. You did Well, AJ, AJ we, we even out, because you have a lot of inches on me, but I'm, I've got a lot of rage hidden deep down. <laughs> you think I don't? <laughs> <laughs> Josh does have some rage in his heart. We That's talked true. about before the show that we both have a hard time crying. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, we got it. We listen, we gotta get the show back on track. All right. Um <laughs> We're gonna have to leave the inequality conversation, you know, aside. The book's a lot about inequality, obviously. It's ranked yeah. throughout it, ranked with yeah. economics. I love it. Just yeah. I loved that section. I really, 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 really loved that conversation. I thought it was amazing. That it was hilarious, but also really like, yeah. Also, I love, I love all the stabs at like government contractors in this book. With Bug being <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's really shocking. No one thought to do these things that I came in and in three weeks or whatever have really solved a ten-year crisis. 
Yeah, with, my, with my fake business. <laughs> yeah, like, I love it. It's so good. Um, yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm holding, I don't know. I, I'm holding my tongue. I think it's almost better to discuss in bigger frame near the end of the book. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, that makes sure. sense. But, so afterwards, uh, Bryce speaks with the Sita about the invasion. There's a great line that says that uh, it occurs to me that life itself is a celebration of denial, which comes up when uh, they're discussing the hold of death, and then they set off to the Azath to speak with Kettle. Ugh, man, I am losing it. I Guys, it's so late. The podcast is going to be so long. I just like Sorry, bud. these questions. I got nothing in the tank, you know? Th- that happened, you know? You can't mm-hmm. say it didn't. Okay, uh, can we just like skip to the Azath part? Yeah, I think the Azath start with the hold of death is some of the is some of the most important shit in this chapter. Yeah, I think that's really the meat on the bone. I mean, Inge, uh, so Kettle is talking with Shirk about the Azath, and then Bryce and Seta show up. What did you make of what what's going on with Kettle and the Azath? That's a loaded question for you to ask me, um, but I'll take it. Um, I have no idea what's going on with the Azath. I love that little Kettle is coming back to life. I think it's so cute and exciting. She's like, what the heck's going on? Um, not that that's the most important part of what's going on here, but just worth noting. So, so we're like one step closer to these nameless people. I'm Mm -hmm. looking forward to knowing more about them. Their names, perhaps. Yeah. Anything, (laughs) anything. I don't understand... So the Cedar, when he finds out that Kettle is dead, was like, oh, my God, she's dead. And that's a big deal. Why? I don't think we know. Okay. To me, I read it more as that moment is just a part of other building blocks of like, what's going on with the hold of death and what's going on with death here? Do you mean it's it's like Mm. just clear the Cedar is curious about this question, you know? Yeah, it could be India that in the Sita's head, you know, he's got like, he has all the puzzle pieces, but he hasn't been told what picture he's making yet. And this kind of made it click for him, you know, yeah. he finally, like, you know, just that one extra fact did something to his brain and boom, he's got it. Yeah, because he had he had known Kettle was out there guarding the Azath or whatever. And like Breeza told him that. And then... um, one, Two other points I want to make about this section overall that um I just thought were funny. One when Shirk comes and takes all the ghost people. Oh, I, wanted to, I want to talk about that forever. It's my favorite scene in this entire book. It was the funniest thing. I thought it was hilarious. She's hilarious. Um, and what a brilliant idea. And then the second <laughs> thing is that Kettle calls the seat a grandfather. And yeah, yeah. Oh the my fact God, that she makes yeah. a family of every person that comes there is the funniest <sighs> thing to me. I, so it, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. I find it hilarious. It's so sweet. Mm-hmm. I find it really sad. I don't know if you find it funny at all. You know? I mean, I think it's funny in the Cetus case because with everybody else, she's like, oh, can I call you uncle? Can I call you dad? Whatever. And then with the Cetus, she's just like, grandfather, what's up? Yeah. And he, so and, and he, he also, he doesn't even comment on it. No, he's yeah. like, yes, child. <laughs> it's so, so good. good. Oh, it's so good. I'm so bewildered funny. by this. I read it as a very sad thing. But, I mean, the whole know. thing is sad, Pete. It's all about death. You know, obviously it's sad, but you got to find the, the funny in there. She's, uh, she's developed an entire family. How long has she been alone? You know, we should be rejoicing for Kettle. Yeah. yeah. So funny. So good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, and then I loved when they were, when Shirk takes everyone to wherever she was taking them. Um, the tolls. The tolls. Yeah. And they were just like, boo. And everyone yeah. was like, ah. And she was like, it's yeah. so funny. This is great. I loved it. I yeah. loved it. 
And also, last point I'm going to make here. Um, I also loved when Tehol accidentally mentioned it in front of his guard. And he was like, but we all know that if anybody tried to do that, there's no way they'd survive it. So, you know, it's like not a big deal. <laughs> Very funny. Great chapter. Loved this chapter. Loved everything about it. Favorite chapter to read so far. Just going to put that out there. Mm. Mm. Of, of this section of four chapters, I mean. It's like every time. I get it, Ninia. There's a chapter, Tail and Buck have fun, and Shirkalal's having fun, and it's like, man, India likes the chapter. She's here you know? for the hijinks. There's nothing good, wrong with that. Wow, good Peter, chapters. I'm sorry that I don't like all the carnage in these books, and I just, <laughs> I, I live for a good time. No, I'm, I'm being, I'm just being and that's what I get. of course, love- of course. I love how petty the dead people are, especially that one that one ghost who's just like, what a dust hazard. I can't believe they put these things here. Everything's going to catch on. Look at this layer of dust. I can't. And just she's so mad about everything. And then she's casually like, oh, so I have an eidetic memory and I have <laughs> already memorized everything in this room. It's amazing. <laughs> Truly amazing. I, I just think it's a great choice that's like kind of subversive, right, to like make all these ghost and undead characters be like almost screwball comedy people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they are spooky in a way, but there's other spooky undead and it's mostly not these people. Right. I yeah. It's, I think it's an interesting choice. Uh, Pete, can you, can you clarify something for me? Uh, when Kettle and Silchasruin are looking over that battlefield, are there no ghosts because they're all with Shirk? Or is that unrelated? Um, I don't have an answer for you. Okay, because they do make a point of like, oh, there's no ghosts. Where are they? And I wasn't sure if they were connected or not. AJ, can you repeat what you just asked? When Kettle and Silchus Ruin are looking over that, the big battlefield with the the Eater and Andy and the Kishin Shamal, uh, and Kettle says something about like, or or Silchus Ruin is like, look, there's no ghosts. And and I just didn't know if that was related to the Shirkawal thing or not. Oh, I was wondering that too. Yeah. Was it? But Pete said he's not going to answer. Oh. <laughs> AJ, Josh, do you have anything to contribute about this long Azath section with Kettle? All I will say is it just adds to my kind of thought that holds and houses are in some ways, I guess, sort of meaningless and people are what gives them their power. I don't really know, man. Like, this shit makes no sense how there wasn't a hold of death and now there just gets to be one. Mm. Yeah. And also, like, someone's got to lead it, and I don't know who that's... Well, I got to say, super interesting when they're like, well, it exists in other places, and we know that. Like, we know that these holds are very similar to what the rest of the world calls houses, you know what I mean? And so, like, High House Death is led by Hood. Assumedly, he leads the holds of death, I guess, too? But that it, was what, it, what I assumed until now. <laughs> yeah, well, and then it just didn't exist here? I don't know. I I, I have many, many questions. I, I think I and like... It's, and it's worth noting, Kettle mentions a mysterious... Uh, oh, the person watching from across the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe that yes, is Hood. Who says that the hold of death needs no guardian and that its throne is always occupied. Yeah, so I guess that maybe that was Hood even himself or one of his messengers. But I don't know, I find yeah. that interesting. I, I feel like in the in the first two books, I was so lost on all things houses and warrens and holds. And slowly but surely, I'm understanding them. And I, I, th- I think they're fascinating. I think they're really cool. Mm. I think we should we should go back and listen to the end of the of Gardens of the Moon just to hear you guys freak out about the Azath. Be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. To literally. be fair, they threw an acorn <laughs> in the ground and a house grew. So still some bullshit. People. 
and then cool. and the books ju- and then they're just like it's an azath and you're like what do you mean <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's true he does call it by name instantly and you're just like ah, uh, that's okay sure <laughs> anyway 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 uh so but n- near the end of the chapter of course there's the shirk and the tolls but i want to come to this point you know there's kind of a pin at the end with bug and tehol but mm-hmm. There's this scene where Kurakan is reflecting back on this prophecy of the Lethari and kind of some of the, what has been talked about earlier in the book and whether they had misread it, you know? And uh, AJ, what did you make of this discussion of the prophecy and kind of the role prophecy has played in the book thus far? Um, This part really was just lost on me. <laughs> Like it happened and I was because I still I I think just every time uh, the city has brought up the seventh closure, I just keep waiting for them to tell us what the other six closures were, because like I just don't understand what this prophecy is. So I don't really have any connection to it, really. But I mean, I guess here they say uh, it's somehow linked to the seventh closure, the rebirth of our empire. That is my fear. And, And which I guess is what the seventh closures prophecy is supposed to be. But you were asking the role of prophecy in this whole book. I don't know. <laughs> really. Uh, it seems so far, I can't really think of a previous pro. I mean, I guess like the, the, the tile readings and stuff. Is that what you're, what you mean? Yes. I don't know. It kind of seems so far. I mean, obviously I don't know what the tile readings mean anyway, but it seems so far that prophecy is irrelevant and does not matter, <laughs> especially when the crippled God is involved. Hmm. I guess I feel differently, but maybe I should sit on those feelings till after we finish the book. Maybe. I don't know. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know what you wanted out of me here. Because honestly, I, 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 the, the prophecy as a theme hasn't really st- stuck out to me throughout this book. Right. So I don't really have an opinion on it. Well, I, I get that there are multiple tile readings and stuff, but... Then let's move on. Yeah. Chapter 18. Oh, wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't realize you meant move on, move on. Uh, before we move on to the next chapter, I do just want to say Tehal naming his little bug Esgara after the the, <laughs> the, king. the king is really good. And I also I think that that little bug I'm going to call a big big called shot right now. I think all the little bugs that we see throughout this chapter specifically uh, is just one big divers. And I don't know, Ooh. I don't know, but that's my called shot. So that would be intense. Calling a shot. Okay. I'll read chapter 18. I got it, Pete. Oh, cool. Thanks. Chapter 18. After their consecrated grounds were destroyed, one of the young Narek dreams. The first dream in many years for his people. The tribe sends him to find Holbedict. Fear speaks with Troll, scolding him for expressing his doubts. Troll says he serves only Fear and no one else. They speak of Rulat, and Troll wants to know who is doing this to him. Troll agrees to only voice his doubts to fear. Queen Janal, Prince Quillis, and Morak Nevath are at High Fort. They speak of their cadres and defensive measures. The Queen is confident in the Letheri. Troll waits with the allied forces and the new demons. Soon the sorcerers of both the Letheri and Kriznan brandish their magics, and the battle begins. On the battlefield, Morak loses the queen and prince. 
Morak watches Troll kill a mage, looks for a horse, then falls down. He watches sorcery slaughter thousands. The Letheri flee back, while Troll calls for a healer and goes towards Fear. Morak watches the brutal attacks of the Jehek, and then spots the prince being taken prisoner. He hears that the fort has been surrendered and the queen is captured as well. He will head south with the Eater. Troll finds a wounded demon and asks about their homeland. They go off to find a healer and find fear in a wounded Kriznod being healed by the Eater women. Troll asks one of the women to heal the demon, but she refuses. Fear commands him to leave the demon. Troll apologizes and leaves to find another healer. The demon is healed and reveals that they are Lilac, and he will be Troll's companion. They go to find Fear, who is the Letheri royalty. Rulad wants the prisoners for himself, and Troll is allowed to stay with Lilac. Lilac and Troll go to the river, and they speak of the demon's land. They talk of the forces of the Narek and the Letheri people. They contrast the Eater and the Letheri. Fear finds Troll, and they spar. Fear threatens Troll with death for his challenges to the Empire. Fear leaves, and Troll weeps. Uh, I don't want to be superlative, because there's probably some other stuff I'd want to bring up in that discussion, but I often think about this battle as one of my favorite in the entire series. I'm head over heels for this chapter, and... I wonder what you make of this battle, India, since I think you, you know, obviously have a mixed relationship with some of the warfare, you know? Yeah. So, okay. There's a lot to unpack here. I was very confused at the beginning of this chapter. The Narek part made no sense to me. I didn't get it at all. I didn't understand what they were saying or what they were doing, if they were angry, if they were not. Secondly, this battle was like less battley and more like magic-y. And when it's magic-y, I get very confused because I can't tell who's doing the magic and who's getting hurt because I just don't think it's a very clear distinction. So in this case, though, I believe what happened was the Eater were doing this big magic somehow. And the Lethery people are like, what the hell? How do they do this? They just keep being, I feel like, shocked at how like much magic the Eater people are doing. Um, and then they're like, shit, we didn't expect this. But it's like repeated. So in this case, I felt all right. And so then they did this large magic thing. The Lethary people said, okay, we're going to back off here. And then they took the queen and the prince. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah. It was okay. It was like, meh. I when it's kind of boring for me to read these parts, to be honest, because it's just like a big wall of magic came up and I'm just like what, the, what does that even look like like I can't even like a wave and then it came down and everything was just destroyed and there's blood and bones and everyone's dead and I'm like well that wasn't fair but this is how <laughs> this is how we wore so yeah so that was pretty fine really I just felt bad for lilac that my biggest takeaway was lilac being hurt and also the fact that they steal these people, these little demons from their homes and make them fight and they don't want to. And it's just very, it, it's very cruel of the Eater people to do that. So yeah, Team Lilac loved, um, oh, and I wasn't mad at Troll for punching that woman in the face. 
There, I said Agreed. it. Agreed. Agreed. Hot take. <laughs> Josh, I know. you're raising your hand. Also, I, we all love. Listen, I haven't heard. We haven't. First time speaking about it. We all love lilac. We yes. don't need to talk about yeah. it. We, we're gonna. We're going to talk about it. But we all love lilac. I want to get yeah. lilac tattooed on my body already. Yeah. Um. I want to come in and give sort of a. So I, if I can give my thoughts on this battle, because I feel like it's a really good example of something that Steve has sort of been kind of getting at, which is like, like Steve is really good at, so like from the perspective, the opposite perspective of India. So like I, I've read tons and tons of battles in fantasy. And I think what Steve is really good at is battles are not won by heroic actions on the field. They are fully won by who makes the more correct guesses before the battle is fought. Like, that is, like, what this shit comes down to. And I think it's so cool because it makes these it makes these fights absolutely brutal, right? Like, the reason that the Eater win this fight is because the, the theory guess, all right, I think they've got about this much magic, so we'll bring the same amount of magic, and we can't, like, they literally say out loud, yeah. well, the sorcerers cancel each other out, so it'll be a steal-to-steal battle, and that is when they lose. Like, they lose in that exact moment when they're like, our wizards will be just as powerful as theirs. Yep. And they guess that wrong, and they get literally, ev- like, blown away. Yeah, yeah I was going to say eviscerated, but, like, like at one point, like, like, you know, they send their big firewall, because that's what the Letheri do, and it gets canceled out by the bones, and the Letheri are like, ha ha ha, we've done it. And then the Eater just have a second bone wave or whatever that just tears thousands of Letheri to death. And it's like that. Boom! You you lost the battle. You didn't guess big enough for how much magic they brought, and I love it. Yeah. And I also want to say I love that fucking the captain. What's his name? Morak or whatever. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. taken out because he he pulls his groin because oh, he yeah. didn't stretch and he's got all this armor on and his his muscles are tense. Yeah, that happens. You pull shit, and if, you, if you've never pulled a groin muscle, you are done. It sucks. And that's just it's just like that's that's real. Like that could happen, and that's just such a dumb unheroic way to get taken out and i love it i think it's so good there's another uh i have a lot of feelings about this battle as well just all positive but there's another person (laughs) who is like oh i got hurt because i ran into a sword of a dead person because it was just sticking up and i wasn't paying attention and it's just like oh (laughs) it's just like things that would really happen that like yeah i don't know like i like game of thrones does a really good job in a couple of the I never read the books. Uh I never will. But a couple of the of the show battles are really good at that mundane bullshit is the difference between life and death versus mm. like, you know, you got to love Tolkien. You got to love Tolkien. But like the like, you know, fucking Legolas is just spinning around, shooting arrows, can do whatever, you know, nothing can touch him. And that's like not I mean, I know none of this is real because there's also not magic, but like yeah, says here. My, yeah. It's true. It's true. So I I think uh, I want to hear AJ your thoughts. I think for me, the reason I'm so hot on the battle, why it's always stuck out so bright in my mind is because sometimes um, when Steve's describing war strategy or just like talking about what type of troops are where on the battlefield and everything going on, you know, I'm not really that interested in this. And, you know, I'm just not not something that compels me as a reader. And I think when you contrast this to this scene, which, um, I don't, you know, it's not really rooted that much in character, you know, but 
I think what I f- still find compelling about the scene is how well realized I think some of the magic is. And when I think about how brutal magic can be in this world, I think about this scene. Because to me, this whole scene is absolutely nightmarish. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Being there for this battle sounds like the fucking worst experience, the worst fucking way to die. You mean just absolutely horror shit. Do you mean the eater forces here are nightmare fuel? And I think it's really well realized how fucking terrifying they are and how the Letheri just get fucking obliterated by it. Yeah, obliterated so, is a wonderful word. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just think for the the sheer terror and horror it leaves in me as a reader, I find this battle and sequence really effective. AJ, why? How did you feel about the battle? Uh, I love this battle. I talked about in the last book uh, how I love when Steve writes the back the the, the double sided narratives of like we switch back and forth between POVs of the same. Uh, mm-hmm, event mm-hmm. and switching back and forth between troll and and morak i think it was a really good kind of juxtaposition i mean they're both witnessing the the horrors of this but the, you know troll is on the the winning side obviously and morak is on the losing side but troll does not want this battle uh and kind of just wants it to be over um and morak is kind of on the opposite side i guess because he is you know he is just a a not just, but he is a member of the army. So like his his whole thing is to just like, oh, we need to fight this battle and do this thing. So he's not really has more invested in it than that, I think. Um, but yeah, Pete, what you were saying about the the magic just being truly horrific, like he, the, the there was one sentence where it's like Morak heard a thousand men die at once and he will never forget that sound. And no. that fucking that really put it into perspective how fucking horrific and how terrible all this magic is. And then seeing it from the from the eater side, seeing that Kariznan uh, who who cast the spell or whatever, and the entire front of his body is just like peeling off because the magic was so fucking intense mm-hmm. uh, is just it. It is. It's nightmare fuel, Pete. It's it's so horrific. It's so horrible. And it's just uh, oh, man, it, it was it was a, a great battle to read and left an impact. Also, I love Lilac. So, yeah. So let's talk about it. Oh, can I just can I say one more funny thing? Please, 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 please. I love the scene of Morak and the prince being like, well, or, you know, the the queen like actually trying to be like, do you think we're going to win? What are the things? And every time Morak's like, they could do this. The prince is like, and then our forces will do this. And he's just so (laughs) matter of fact about it. And I'm like, you dumb idiot. Like, there's a forest. Why would they put their entire army in front of and the first thing troll says is just like and this is only one third of our army visible there's two thirds they haven't seen yet i'm like of course that's like 101 (laughs) and the priest i I just i love when dump well i i i'm not excited for whatever happens to him when he gets to rulad but like i love you think something bad's gonna happen to him i have a sneaking suspicion i would say (laughs) um so that brings us to our new demon character lilac and indy i just want to ask what do you think we're just getting a first impression of him and you know he's drawn to this world he's kind of we hear about his whole demon fisher life so interesting love this development love that steve is giving life and humanity and and fleshing out what it means to be these demons you know but do you think there's a chance lilac will surpass apt as the show's favorite demon okay um absolutely and i'll tell you why i was so invested that I did what I wasn't supposed to do. (gasps) 
No. no. And I no. did. <laughs> and <India. so> <laughs> she hasn't even said it, but we all know. <laughs> and did you do the G, the G word, India? I did the G word. I did the G word. And I wasn't going to tell you guys, but I just feel like I need to be authentic when we're on this show together <laughs> and to everyone that watches it. So I did. And that's all I have to say about that. And maybe I see the disappointment. I actually feel the disappointment radiating off of you, hitting me in waves, so almost that's like magic. So but um, <laughs> I love, I, I really, uh, really love Lilac. And I had to know. Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, I guess we'll leave that Lilac talk right there. I feel like the wind got taken out of my sail a bit. Um, <laughs> Um, like, listen. At least you know I'm honest. I won't lie to you. <laughs> no, you you, you you didn't lie. But let's let, let's come to the final. And of course, it's you know it's <sighs> it's fine. It's fine. But the final scene in the chapter, Odge, is that um, troll and fear talking. They spoke earlier at the beginning of the chapter, but we haven't really necessarily been going chronologically through it. We've kind of just been, I don't know, hodgepodging in a way. Mm. So I wonder what you think more about how their relationship is right now, because I think here in this chapter, we see where it has grown to and how tense it is between the two brothers, AJ. Yeah, I would say at this point, at the end of this conversation, I think Troll has lost all of his brothers. And I, I mean, we haven't seen Benedis in a while, but I assume Benedis is just kind of on the same wavelength as Fear, uh, just from the way that Fear is like, oh, if you were saying this to Benedis, you'd be dead. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, at the end of this conversation, Troll is just like truly alone. But then but then Lilac puts, 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 puts their hand on, on his back and it's very nice. But I don't know, this conversation was heavy. It was rough. I don't know. There's some, there, there were some cool things or there was there's something I do have a question about, but I Pete, I wanted to know if you wanted to know more of my like emotional feelings or like what you wanted. No, emotion it up. Yeah, well no, that's that's it. Those were all my emotions. It's it stinks. Troll has lost all his brothers. He is extremely sad. I would also be very sad. I really feel for him in this moment, and he is now almost fully back to uh being my son mode, you know, uh in, in his house of chains <laughs> mode. Inge, did you have something you want to share about their bro- the, the brothers here? Yeah, I when I when Troll is talking to Fear and he's kind of like rationalizing out what they're doing. I don't know if I if do you guys think that Fear like is choosing to not rationalize it because like he I feel like he agrees in a way. He's just like, but it's just not, you know, like this is just not what we're doing. So, I, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think fear knows what Troll is saying and like understands and on a level feels what Troll is saying. Right. But also he is more of kind of like a, a loyalist, I guess, um, to his people. Loyal. You know? He's like, oh, well, like, I have to do this for the for the better. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And it, and it is a chosen blindness. Right. Like, <clears throat> and I think we can see that from the conversations he has with Troll. He's like, well, you can't say that kind of stuff. Exactly. That's not you know, that's not stuff that'll that'll keep you alive. Um, and so I, I think you're right that um, fear is, is choosing to choosing to rationalize these things um, that Rulat is doing, which I feel just makes it that much like worse for troll. So isolating. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel mm-hmm. it's and it. Yeah, it just must be so annoying to be you're making so much sense. And yet everyone's like, well, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Especially when Troll's there and he's like, well, but like, who even is control? Like, who even is this God? Like, what mm-hmm. is it? And he's like, well, I don't know. You shouldn't ask this question, bro. And then right. Troll's like, is this the new policy about questions? You know? Yeah, I that's uh, so that it was really actually I felt sad, but I also felt like frustrated. Like you could feel the frustration, I feel like coming off of Troll in this part and fear just completely ignoring it. Yeah. Well, that's how I feel. Inge. I don't I don't feel sad. I know AJ saying he feels sad. I feel frustrated and pissed at fear yeah. in these scenes. Yeah, you know? it, it's extremely emotional. But I, I think like because they talk about they, they go back and forth a little bit. They, they spar verbally before they spar physically. And Troll is like, oh, well, we're following this faceless person that is like controlling our brother or whatever. And Fear is like, well, you knelt too. Uh, and Troll, <laughs> Troll's like, well, why do you think I did? You did it first and I trust you. And then one and all, we knelt before Rulad, believing we saw in each other a certainty that did not in truth exist. And it was just it's. Oh, <laughs> it's just it's it's heartbreaking. It really is like like to me that is heartbreaking that everybody's just like, well, you know, if if X, Y, Z sees this as like the right thing to do, then I guess it's the right thing to do. And I got to put myself aside. But and especially um, knowing the yeah. outcome, too, that like it doesn't end in a way in the right in the way that it should. Like they don't they don't agree. They never see it from his point of view. And he is actually cast out because of well, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but, you know. Yeah, presumably, presumably it's presumably this. Yeah, right. you're right. Yeah. So oh, um, frustrating. Yeah. Also, I wish that I could read just a sidebar. These battle scenes through your guys's eyes, because when you talk about it, it sounds so much more interesting than it actually is when I'm reading it. And hmm. I want yeah, it's just different, different. No, no, I just right? I just think that I don't get it until you guys say it in a way in like common language and when i'm reading mm. it i'm just like what the f- what what am i reading what what are they saying what is yeah. like i can't visualize anything so yeah well the mm. stuff you say about like the magic being hard to understand i totally get that because i feel the exact same way i had to read those parts like three times to be like oh this is what happened because it is ex- described in a way that's very hard to visualize because it's you know well, not real I, I think it's on purpose i think erickson writes about his magic systems in a way that is purposely obtuse, obtuse. Yeah. and uh, like magical and mysterious do you yeah. mean yeah like there's an abstraction there that i don't know i do think can let people be confused sometimes but i yeah. think it's also part of how he sets to describe the metaphysical and even yeah. um like when Josh is saying like, oh, yeah, the one side and, and AJ, you too, because like, you like being on the one side and then seeing the other side of it. And it for me, mm-hmm. I have such a hard time knowing, like separating, even reading the physical mm-hmm. book, because I read now when they're talking about like, oh, well, they are going to do this and then we'll have this. Like, I don't it just doesn't doesn't it doesn't click for end. But then we talk about it later and I'm like, oh, that is interesting. So mm-hmm. another reason why this pod is so good for me, too. before we move on i do just want to lilac says in their realm um that there are big catfish Uh, (laughs) so good and that the the big catfish we saw in the last book with with perrin and absalar right shit do they get taken from that realm you know the realm that we keep now that's a warren they they definitely don't get taken from there where troll ends up that was what my thought was like oh wow yeah um but they don't she doesn't they uh, they don't say catfish they say like big fish with the whiskers or whatever mm. um which is is big catfish um and then also oh sorry pete mm. 
<laughs> that would be that would be cool if that's where it's from. That's awesome, AJ. I didn't catch that. Uh, thank you. And then also, Fear says that the Lethary Steel seemed untouched by the magic. So is Lethary Steel Otateral or like Otateral infused or oh, something? I just thought, damn, I forgot about Otateral. I was just in my head. I was just like, damn, that's some good steel. That's as far <laughs> as my mind went. <laughs> yeah, Pete. I guess we'll all find out now, won't we? <laughs> I let's guess read, so. Let's discuss Midnight Tides, Chapter 19. Chapter 19. Udonis is on the docks, watching the sharks and gulls feeding. Feather Witch's beatings have continued. Sea battles are raging between the two nations. Udonis attends a meeting where the Warlock King speaks of visions of the Eater conquering other realms and make plans to flood these realms and conquer them. Man speaks up and accuses Udonis of being possessed. And then Udonis speaks on Man's abuse of Featherwitch. Rulad forbids the beating and then confides in Udonis and that Man has become a problem for him, but that she is pregnant with his child. Saren cuts her hair. She thinks that she should have let Iron Bars brutalize and torture her rapists. She speaks to Iron Bar about the local horses and their origin from the distant Blue Rose. The Blue Rose seem to have been sabotaging the cavalry with poor equipment. They decide to track the group that killed this family that was tending to the horses. They speak briefly on the Crimson Guard's vow that is keeping them unnaturally alive. Saren goes into the woods and finds five statues of Tarthanol gods. She thinks of these strange massive statues and her pain. Iron Bars finds her and says he killed Rulad. A Tarthanol named Arbat comes to appease the gods and keep them quiet. Sandalith Drukorlat wakes up on the shore of the crippled god. She speaks with Withal for a while and thinks that the Noct around Withal are trying to say something. Saren and Ironbars catch up to the killers and dispatch them. Saren tells Ironbar, though, that his compassion isn't going to help him. Can I tell you, Kai's confessed to you guys my big thought, you know? Okay. Sure. I was thinking it earlier, you know, um, this scene, you know, there's this whole dramatic court scene and all this, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, but at the end, of course, it ends with Udonis and Rulad again, you know, the two of them. I might just start shipping them. What do you think <laughs> of them as a couple? Um, I think that's a choice. Because <laughs> to me, it seems more like a choice. It's to me, it seems more of like a, a, a paternal relationship. Yeah, I'm mostly joking, but they have such a tender relationship, you they know? Do. They it's do. It's toxic AF. It's really going to suck when Udinas, I don't know, Kurt kills him mercilessly or whatever, or stabs him in the throat or something. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know, dude. To do. Compassion, you know? That's the whole, that's the whole thing. Compassion. Uh, what I say? Which I got to say, people in the Discord were not hot on. <laughs> I'm very hot on compassion, and this it. is well known, so... Let's speak about the chapter now, shan't we? So at the beginning of it is this court scene, as I kind of alluded to. Josh, what did you make of it in this conflict? Uh, they talk more about Mayan's pregnancy, and then they also... 
Udonis kind of get called out for maybe being possessed, which he is. So, like, what? What, what do you what do you think's going on with his position in the court? So, I really feel like, so to speak, there are moments when I'm. I feel like Udin Udinas. As I'm like, what's to... going on with this character? So what do you think so, of them? So here's the thing, right? So Udinas, I I feel like has. I'm trying to describe it, right? He acts very, very appropriately for the situation in a way that doesn't feel earned to me. Like I like I like Udinas as a character, and I I think he's so interesting and cool. But I I really struggle. To see how he got from chapter one to where he is now, unless the answer is the Wivel blood changed him. You know what I mean? Like he's really freaking cool under pressure. And that and I just and I, I don't know. I just I, I I mean I guess part of it could be that he has multiple times been like, ah, and then this is the moment where they find out, didn't they? Kill me. And he's just kind of really chill about it. And so I guess maybe because the threat of death is kind of welcome in a way he just kind of plays real cavalier i don't know but i feel like i'm really making excuses sometimes mm -hmm. for how well he is able to play these super tense social situations in the court you know what i mean mm. i think yeah. he really just doesn't care at that point though it seems like he's right? just like, I, I, I guess that's okay. what it is i just don't love that i don't know it mm. just doesn't that doesn't resonate with me as well but but regardless of that the whole the whole court scene is awesome I, I think in, in like the the quickness of these people to fucking turn on each other. Um, I don't like Mayan and I haven't since chap since we met her, basically. And I does not mean I don't sympathize with her in many, many ways. I, I really do not. Her position is terrible. But like she fucking rats Udinas out with zero hesitation i feel bad too that featherwitch also is the what like featherwitch told her that shit i guess which is not great but also i mean it sounds like featherwitch is being beaten to within an inch of her life every day so like i get it i would just be i would look i i'm telling you right now josh baker turns on on his friends quick we're learning a lot situation. about josh baker in this episode <laughs> yeah. I would yeah. hungry for I power <laughs> Would kill Peter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but I, 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 and it's also, I mean, I gotta tell you, Udinas is like in this position where he can, he can make Rulad think whatever he wants him to think pretty easily. It's very interesting. I, I really enjoy it. He, he turns Rulad. Also, how does Rulad not notice Featherwitch is dead, basically, in the room or whatever? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Didn't she I say that got she a singular got, focus. Um, it was like, she got hit, hurt somewhere else. And that's what he thought. I can't remember. It's weird. Josh, I think you bring up a good point about just how, like, fragile and absolutely, uh, I don't know, hollow everything, the, these relationships and this dynamic is. I mean, just like on the turn of a hat, everyone is just saying, I don't know, just the claws are out, baby. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's just... Inge, what did you make of this uh, this court scene and Udonis? And where are you at with him? I think I think it would be a great time to just talk about where we are at with this character. You know, I have a few thoughts. Um, I'm not anywhere particular with him. I just think he's either I don't know because like not for nothing, he kind of like is quite the survivor, but also <clears throat> not not because he's like trying to. He just kind of does. So I find that to be interesting. But my main thing that I thought when I read this is like, we don't know anything. Mayan just kind of randomly came out with, well, 
Budenas has poisoned blood, like out of nowhere. Nobody was even talking to her. Yeah. And so I don't know why she even, like, I, that was just a weird thing. But also, we don't know anything about man before she, like, turned into this man. So it's, like, really hard to empathize with a character that had, was, no, like, a non-character and then now yeah, is, she like, was In the first half of the book, she's mostly just, characterized as fears betrothed. Right, yeah. And so, like, there is no personality. Right. So the only personality we know is, like, oh, she's been raped and uh, now is not nice and, like, very resigned to her life right so i like i kind of get um what josh was saying about like not really liking her character because like you there's nothing to know but um also so i don't really get what's going on with udinas um or why like i have no real he he's just you know he's just doing nothing but somehow just sliding by um i think rula just really needs him as a as a like an anchor so he until he doesn't um or i don't know how what's going to play out in that situation but um i think they all know that the what is his name the warlock king and um mayan and i think that that and i think they all kind of they know that rulad has the power but he's so easily influenced i think everyone can kind of oh yeah for sure um and so they know that udinas has that influence and they don't Hmm. like it Mm-hmm. So I really like this scene, actually. And I liked when um, Rulad said, Mayan, stop beating the shit out of Weather, uh, Feather Witch. It's not cool. No. Mm-hmm. I vibed with that. So he's in there somewhere. AJ, you referred to the relationship as paternal? Oh, between Udinas and... Yeah. Well, Udinas kind of care. I mean, we, we, we start out with the beginning of their relationship when Udinas is applying the coins, which is, you know, very done with a lot of care and carefully and blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of just like the ritual of it. But then when Rulad wakes up, Udinas is just very caring. And there is the line in there saying that he, he was cradling Rulad's head like a mother. And I think that's just kind of uh, th- that, that moment where Udinas tries to leave Rulad with his brothers and Rulad like grabs his arm. I think we haven't, or Rulad hasn't like uh, mentally, I guess, like left that space. Like he, I feel like he's still just grasping onto Udinas's arm. It's just like, please don't go. Please help me. Like, just like stay with me. Um, mm-hmm. And I understand how that can also come across as like a ship worthy relationship. But to me, it feels more just like a caregiver and, and someone who needs to be cared for. No. So that's an, I think that's a great way to frame it. Yeah. And I do think uh, from Udinas's perspective, it is, that by necessity like Udinas knows like I need to, to act you know to do this or I'm going to be killed you know or or whatever or worse so I don't know if necessarily it's a, a reciprocal relationship in that way emotionally but it is reciprocal uh I guess literally I don't know hmm. we follow up with the Tarthanol here um and we learn a little Wait, bit before we go Peter I just have a quick question about something that happened in that scene uh-huh. um when they're when when they are examining Udinas, but it's actually <laughs> Wither. Yeah, they. What yeah. ha- What what did what happened there? Ooh, can I try? Because I think I get it. Hit it. So so Wither uh, is not. I think because of whatever Udinas did with grabbing that like ring or whatever way back when, Wither is no longer like under the control of the Eater like all of the other wraiths. 
which means that like he's been kind of being places where wraiths are needed and doing tasks, but he doesn't have to complete them the exact way that the eater asks, you know what I mean? So he like worked his way into being this position so that if someone questioned Udenas, he could be like, yeah, let me check him out. All good here, boss. And what is a wraith? These because they just keep coming. So up. I mean, like the spirit of dead Tisty Andy. I imagine them as as shadow figures. Yeah, they say when when Wither comes out of uh, Udanas, he just assumes his per- his uh, appearance as a shadow person, pretty mm-hmm. much. So just like a person. Are they visible? Close to- yeah, they're visible, but they're they are like covered in you know shadow and darkness and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're dead. Yes, they are. They are basically ghosts that people can yeah. see that are covered in shadow and and can kill people. And they and they control and they're in they're being controlled by Eater. Yes. yes. Do we know why? That's just kind of the Eater magic, I think, as they draw on these these shades. Well, these and the wraiths. big thing is they don't know they're Tisty Andy. They right. think they're they think they're Tisty Eater. I believe they think I, the wraiths are Tisty Eater. Yeah. Yeah. They th- yeah they don't know that they've like who doesn't know the Eater the- themselves only like. Uh, only like uh, the Warlock King knew that the Wraiths are Tisty Andy um, and are being held there against their will. I think the rest of the Eater are just like, they're our good Wraith friends. Okay. Why don't they say anything? Because they can't, because they're bound. And they don't. Yeah. That's that's like the whole, the the, um, the alternate history of Siltris Ruin being the betrayer, right? Right. That is kind of where that comes from. It's like, oh, Siltris Ruin is the betrayer, so these Wraiths must be eater because they were betrayed yeah, and they can't rest. Yeah, they think they're yeah they think the wraiths are their ancestors who were betrayed and who stick around to help the eater out but in reality it's the andy they betrayed and murdered and then they're as we see from the the, the, the 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 female tisty andy you know because they're like mortal bodies or whatever you know wasn't allowed to do whatever they weren't allowed to pass on they got stuck as wraiths or whatever it's really confusing yeah okay and nobody can talk to them except for. And I think the only reason that with Wither can talk to Udnas is that, like, I think because Udnas has the Wyvil blood, and I think because uh, with Wither's like ring was close to the surface for the first time in eons or whatever. I don't know. It's kind His of I, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah there was right. Some, yeah. There was something that um, it was an arrowhead, I think maybe an arrowhead. It was an arrowhead. Thank you. Yeah, the you thing, the thing that Udenas found, and then Wither was like, "Oh, you need to resurrect me," like way, way early back in the book. That's right. The ring was what the female Tisty Andy, whose name I can't remember at the second. Uh, I've been calling Sandalath. her Sandy. Sandalath, Sandy. Sandy. So gives, she's the same. So she's also was a wraith. She yes. was a Tisty. I don't know if she was a wraith. I think she was stuck in the Warren. I think she was a wraith, forever. but she wasn't. She wasn't the kind of wraith that was able to interact with the real world. She was stuck I in the Warren. I forget. There's a lot it's, of shit. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> this sometimes book is so confusing. <laughs> sometimes right, I think on. when you try and chart out and explain the stuff, you somewhat become one of these people trying to explain the plot of Kingdom Hearts to me. <laughs> you just that become hurts. the char- Charlie in that Pepe Sylvia scene of uh, <laughs> it's it's in Pepe Sylvia like. I love that scene. It's so yeah. good. This name keeps um, popping up. Silver Shrewin. Silver Shrewin. There is no betrayer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't get it, guys. What do you make? What was this a reference from? Uh, it's, it's always sunny Philadelphia. Sorry. Let's move on, please, Pete. 
So there's this quote I wanted to read. Saren says, Such dark moments in Letheri history were systematically disregarded, she knew, and played virtually no role in their culture's vision of itself as bringers of progress, deliverers of freedom, from the fetters of primitive ways of living, the cruel traditions and vicious rituals. Liberators, then, destined to wrest from savage tyrants their repressed victims in the name of civilization. Man, definitely can't relate to that at all. <laughs> no, nothing applicable <laughs> so glad, there. So glad in the real world, we we in, in our country, we never gloss over the dark moments of our history. That would be bad. So on an unrelated note, I think it's interesting we get a experience with the Tarthanol here, who are one of these... Uh, tribes outside of uh that the lether have conquered and they these are the ones that kind of have been pretty much genocided and just completely wiped out right so like it's interesting to contrast that with the neric who you know obviously have been colonized you know they're people you know are refugees and um we see some more of them and we we do see some half-blood tarthanols but I think it's really interesting to see kind of the remnants of a lost people here. So I just wanted to read that quote and that and those statues and those scenes really stood out to me. I don't mm. know if that spoke to any of you. I thought it was really cool. I was really confused with the poop stuff. Yeah. Uh, Arbot, right? Was that his name? Like yeah. dumping the yeah. piss and shit all over the things. And I was confused about the whole thing. Yeah. Was, the whole was, thing didn't get yeah, any that, of it. That, I was, I thought it was cool, and and then he threw poop at the statues, and then I was like, I understand and less, unless that was what statues. was sacred to them. Oh yeah, they, he called it gold or something. Yeah, yeah, he did call it gold. Oh, and he called the piss ale or something. Yeah, golden gold ale. Golden ale. It's just yeah. like what? So Inge, you mentioned it earlier of uh, Sandalith. Dracorlat waking up on the shore and uh what'd you make of this kind of scene with him with her when she arrives on the crippled gods island she's clearly like confused as to what just happened she's like what i'm alive huh huh it's like no girl you have no idea <laughs> um i don't the crippled god is so annoying mm. for like when he says to um wither 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 Withel. Oh, I have something for you. And it's it's a it's a freaking person. He's so rude. Um <laughs> so rude. So I don't know. I think I need to know more about what this plan is and why she's there. Um, but I think that she's actually very funny. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. Just like she's what's so going funny. on? There's nobody here. This is it. Like yeah. where can I get clothes? <laughs> so I liked that. Then she punches him in the face and he falls asleep so i'm just intrigued to unpack more of what happens there i didn't realize until she said her name that she was the the andy wraith i i felt very dumb for three for at the end of the chapter she becomes a person again yeah, but, so I but, we, but i didn't realize that it was her yeah, yeah she's like on a beach and then they're like there's a gray-skinned person as or uh whatever skin color that andy are i forget they're black skinned yeah and i was just like oh okay it's her yeah i don't know but i thought it was fun that was good mm -hmm. but loved it yeah cool all right the forest one to save this discussion around saren's rape in chapter 16 and uh her feeling and the, that storyline's continuing in chapter 19 because we were talking about it throughout the week as we read it and i think we all had a, a lot of different thoughts about this and uh We've talked about it before, and I, we're going to keep talking about it 
as the series continues. And so we, I think we just wanted to wait to the end and share where our feelings about where we are at now with this type of stuff. So, India, what did you think about Saren's rape in these chapters? Um, so Saren's rape, in, I thought, was um, very randomly placed. I know maybe people won't agree, but I don't know how you couldn't agree. Because um, she, she wasn't, you know, only raped. She was also beaten. So it just seems as though it, it didn't need to happen. However, um, I think that's kind of the trend is that it, it does need to happen to move the story along for some reason. Um, not to say that I, I don't know what the argument is, whether it's that um, this is what happens in the real world, although we're not in the real world. Um, and to, to, to not rape someone is unrealistic, which is also concerning to me. But I just, I just thought there was, again, really no purpose uh, for it. I think that you can m- motivate or brutalize someone in a different way. And when it's mainly just happening um, to the female characters in a world where there is no gender role, that also makes no sense. To assert dominance over someone, um, especially women, in that way to prove, a, to prove that you... That I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. Um, and if we're speaking historically or, you know, well, this is what really does happen during war. I can't speak to that. What I can speak to is that in, in literature or in movies, you know, you don't read them to, I guess, to experience and to read about things that are just so grotesque and vile. And, and more so than that. I'm sorry, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And if you don't agree, that's totally fine and none of my concern. Um, But (laughs) I, I just feel like when I when I read this, as similar to the other um, rapes, I just felt again, how was this effective? If you find it effective, if it really moved you, that's fine. It's um, and I and I don't know why or how, but that's again not my business. Um, but I just feel like it, it. We could have done without the the pain between the thighs, the pain between the legs. It's all. It's it's just. It just. I don't know how it moved the story along. Um, feel free to prove me wrong. I probably won't know or uh, read about it. But if you have the desire to do so, please do. And yeah, so I'm just kind of. It, I just don't get it yet. Maybe there's going to be a point when I do get it, but as of now, I don't get it. I don't see the point. I don't see how it's effective. I don't see how it moves story along. I don't see how it makes the character better. I don't see how it makes the character worse. I don't see how it's a realistic situation. I, I just see it as um, pointless. Pointless. That's all. I, and that's it. Um, I've never read a story where it moved any where it moved it along in any way. I've never read a story where this this many rapes occurred. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I don't know. And I, I just, that's my only thoughts on that. That all of those thoughts are my only thoughts on that. I I have a brief set of thoughts on this. Um, I was a little in chapter 16 or whatever it is when Saren wakes up with pain between her legs, I was done, but I didn't really give it a, I didn't really think about it much because after our last convert, after, uh, our talk about it in house of chains, you know, um, I kind of was like, well, 
I'm sure this has a purpose. I because Steve uh, told us Steve was very ardent in his desire to explain that he he doesn't write these things for for no reason. But at the end of chapter 19, I really hated what is at 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 first glance the reason. I really hated that the uh, presumably Saren was assaulted in order to provoke character growth. And listen, maybe I'm putting it too simply, and if you think that's the case, that uh, as India said, write me. I just hate it. I just, like, I, I think there's other reasons to be motivated. I think there's other ways to make a character feel helpless and to feel like they have no power in the world than having them be raped. And I also think that this is the third time a, a female character has been raped and then it's okay strong male character comes in and kills them we saw it with stony and gruntle we saw it with uh everything with bitathol and karsa and now we've seen it here with saren waking up feeling violated being face to face with her rapists who conveniently stayed within a one block area of her because that makes total sense and then, but it's okay, Iron Bars is here, and he, you know, doesn't murder them, and it's this, I, I and I want to say that, I mean, look, Steve is an incredible writer, and I want to trust him, and I will give it the rest of this book, uh, but, like, gut feeling was I finished 19, and I said out loud to myself that if I was not obligated to my friends to do a podcast about these books... I would put these books down now and I would not finish this one and I would not finish the series was how I felt at the end of 19, hmm. which is which is crazy to me because until now, I was fully aboard Midnight Tides being my favorite book of the series and one of the top books I've ever read. And then this one chapter really just took the wind out of all of my sails. Yeah. Um, yeah, Josh, you, you, you bring up uh, something that I also... Uh, felt in terms of like using the rape as a way to strip her of power and to cause character development um i agree that there are other ways to do it i think there are things that have happened in this book that if we could have just fleshed that out a little bit more um like her relationship with hull or or the the suicide of of burrook like i think those things are traumatic enough things that you know, could make her feel power powerless because look, Saren throughout this whole book has just been an, an observer. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and she, she was with Burke and Hall and, and was watching everything that happened at, at the eater camps. And then she was just with, uh, Burke and she watched the, the leather, uh, assault on the, on the eater camp that she just left. Um, and then she had lost Hull at the eater camp and then she loses Burke at, uh, that town she's in and she is clearly affected by that right she's immediately uh, drowning her sorrows in alcohol and that actually she's she's drowning her sorrows in alcohol um and i i i don't know i think if she just sat with those feelings for longer i think that she already had enough motivation to contemplate suicide like to contemplate drowning herself or to you know sh shave her head and and all of this stuff and and part of what really irks me about the the uh, chapter 19 when when she's thanking iron bars for saving her and and how she kind of wishes that he had she had let him like torture them and stuff is that he's like oh well you know i have a great granddaughter so uh, she she'd be about your age and it's just like we don't need to, <laughs> to justify saving a woman's life because you also know a woman you know like yeah. that sucks 
that sucks so bad. Um, and, and I don't think it needed to be said. I don't think it, it needed to be in there. I mean, other than to show that uh, Iron Bars is old, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know. And so it just it just feels really I feel really shitty about Saren's arc because she had been one of my favorite characters um, in this observer role, in this Dewicker type role of just uh, seeing the world, how it is and, and how stuff is happening. And for just like uh, just for her, her, for her to become what she has become here, just like a, a woman with no will to live because she has been raped, uh, like that being the final straw. I just don't know if that feels uh, authentic to me. Uh, and I think she already had enough reasons throughout the rest of this book to, to feel the way that she does. And it didn't need to, it didn't need to come down to that. So obviously, thank you for sharing your opinions. I wanted to bring in two opinions that are not our own. And uh, these come from the tour reread of Midnight Tides. And maybe we should put a link in the yeah, show say. notes. But um, it's a great resource if you want to talk about what's going on in the books. And they have a similar thing where they had some readers comment on different chapter on every chapter of the series. So here, uh, Amanda comments this question uh, on this passage. Does Erickson use rape too often? Does it remain shocking or do you start thinking, oh, another one? Here we go again. The ache between her legs told her the worst had happened. Discuss. India, what do you think of her question there um initially before you know thinking about it more that was my thought again okay and i even said that like i said to you guys before i even like you just read that oh the ache between the legs like it's it's just the same thing every time like i agree i don't think i i don't i think it is kind of repetitive at this point to be honest leaving out everything else i said it is repetitive and because of that, I, it's, it's just an irksome to me. Um, I agree that if we're just leaving everything else that's problematic out of it, the sheer repetitiveness of it is undeniable. And Bill here rejoins and says, Actually, I'd say Erickson's use of rape multiple times is the right way to use it. I'd argue when one focuses on a single rape, it is less effective for several reasons. One is it could be seen as pretending it happened just that once, which is just not that real. Or if we're supposed to take it as a quote-unquote representative rape, then it trivializes the act by reducing it to the abstraction of symbol. Or a singular use makes it stick out and becomes a big thing to manipulate us for characterization. The way it raises its ugly head and again and again in the series makes it more real, less abstract, less symbolic, harder to see as a crafted plot or a character point. That's how I take it. Josh, what do you think of Bill's opinion here? First off, I hate the first sentence, but like, I get why he wrote it, but you know... I, I guess part of me understands what he means by, like, if there was one singular instance of rape, that it... I, I understand what he kind of means, that it becomes a symbol? No, I don't, actually. Thought about it more. Disagree wholeheartedly. I, I don't understand what that means. Uh, I really tried uh, to, to to take it and make, and make it make sense. I don't get it. I... Like, something being real and not abstract doesn't mean it's good or that I like it. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't... 
Like, I I don't know. I I just, I, I really struggle to, because he's saying, here's my issue. The argument is that if there was one rape, it would be a, he says it would be a big thing to, to manipulate us for characterization. But the thing is, is that every single time that a character is raped in this series, it is a moment that manipulates characterization. Like, it doesn't just happen and that character goes about their day. Like, it irreparably changes them. And I get... I mean, I mean, kind of rightfully so, right? Yeah, and I'm gonna... And look, people are gonna come and they're gonna say, yes, exactly the point. And I'm gonna say, but me as the reader, because guess what, guys? I'm also reading these books and I'm allowed to... I'm allowed to not jive with shit, even though I'm, I'm Mr., you know, happy-go-lucky 99% of my life. I don't like it. And I think it's bad and gross and I hate when I have to read about it. And I think... If it isn't handled, I think the problem is that the more it happens, the e- the more like like the more chances there are for it to be used in a way that doesn't that just doesn't come across well. And I think I really hit it. And I think in this one so far, I've hit that point where I'm like this one. I really I just can't with. You know what I mean? It's not even like like we don't like the person who doesn't does isn't named. It's just it's just a collection of random fucking dudes taking advantage of the chaos and then they're summarily taken out. I, I just like if you're saying that doing it once would be not great because it would be a big thing that manipulates us. The problem is every time it comes up, it does that. And I just think that this argument doesn't make sense. I certainly think India voiced a lot of my frustrations with this uh, with this scene. I definitely felt frustrated by what happened with Saren. Um, I mean, she's one of my favorite characters, but still frustrating. I think I end up being aggravated and baffled by the inclusion of this many depictions of violence against women and girls, you know, because... To me, the series is not very interested in exploring issues of sex and gender, you know, which is, of course, fine. It doesn't have to be. But I find it a baffling choice to then write about sexual violence as much as it does, you know, because I feel like we're not really engaging with the specifics around this type of violence. You know, I feel like when you want to talk about this if you're not willing to grapple with the specifics of the issue, I think the dialogue can only really go so far. So I think what India said really resonated with me. I mean, if this storyline or the Bitathal storyline or some of this stuff is really, you know, is speaking to you about these issues of sexual violence, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you're getting something out of it. But to me, I don't think this makes me think about the issues in any new way. I don't think it brings an interesting perspective to it. And I I feel like it's just trying to remind me that this happens and that this is a part of war, which I I just don't think is that meaningful of a point to keep bringing up as often as the series does. So I think that's where I end up feeling just completely baffled. That's how I feel. I feel frustrated and baffled that... We're continuing to talk about this subject again and again in just, I don't know. I don't feel like, I don't know. Uh, that I, I don't know if you guys get that at all or feel that way. I just, I just, I, I, it's, it's obviously something been under my skin, so. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I would say I'm baffled, but I'm definitely like, I definitely agree that I don't think the book needs to try and deal with this, these, these issues, which I, I, is probably not the way that I mean to say that, but the book deals with 
so much so sorry the books deal with so much stuff so much stuff uh and it kind of feels like including these 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 acts of rape and and you know assault and all of that just feels like another thing the book is trying to deal with and i don't know if it is i don't want to say i don't know if it's possible but i don't know if it's possible for the the book to have so much stuff in it and to also deal with these these issues in a in a meaningful way because it is such a huge multi-layered issue on its own you know the violence against women and, and sexual assault and rape is such a huge thing on its own that putting it in the context of this whole series that already deals with you know the horrors of war and and all of this these other things surrounding like you know what it means to be human and it's it, it just so much stuff um, I just don't know if for me, I guess there is a satisfying way for this series to deal with these issues. Uh, and it just makes me wish that they weren't in the books. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you there. I mean, but the, the way I basically think about it is I think the, the series is very interested in suffering and people who like the like the fallen if we're going to use that word like mm-hmm. the people who are receiving these violence and the consequences of these things you know so i think that's what's driven to talk about it since obviously that's just a part of the human condition and society and war and nani 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 but i just don't think it adds that much to the conversation of it i don't know mm-hmm. well i think that'll probably do it for us today and i think the reason we put this segment at the end is i think as we talked throughout the week it was clear we all had a lot of thoughts as we mentioned and I think it could be worthwhile for us to talk to some other people or for me to talk to some other people. Uh, I wish you guys had read all the books so we could have a bigger discussion about the series, but that's something we'll we'll be able to tackle as the series continues. But I think it's, uh, I think we all wanted to share where we are at with this right now and just put our emotions on the air. I think that's what we wanted to do on the show and, We understand if you disagree, and um, that's where we're at. So let us know what you think of the show at 10 Very Big Books on Gmail and Twitter. And, uh, you know, of course, we had a heavy conversation at the end, but um, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here, screaming into the void. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast, and Happy New Year. As always, you can let us know your thoughts about this and all of our other episodes on Twitter at 10VeryBigBooks or via email, 10VeryBigBooks at gmail.com. If you'd like to join the conversation on Discord, you can head on over to bit.ly slash Discord and join everyone there. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D, Discord. That link will also be in the show notes. Uh, thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on Patreon. We are currently at 181 patrons and $587 a month. Honestly, those numbers are mind-blowing, and we appreciate you all so, so, so much. If you'd like to check out our Patreon, you can visit the link in the show notes or head on over to patreon.com slash 10verybigbooks, where we also have a new public post outlining some of our goals for the show in 2021. So again, if you're interested, that link is in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Gesrick for making our spectacular logo. You can follow him 
him on Twitter at Dan Gesrick for what I can only describe as some sort of sleeper cell activation message. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode is by the one and only Amaranthin from their album Simulant Rain, which you can find along with their other music on bandcamp.com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes and 10 very big books will be back in two weeks on January 29th with chapters 20, 21, and 22 of Midnight Tides. Talk to you then, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>